Thank you, Mark. May God write his word on our heart. Before I preach, I want to show you something. If we could bring up a little video here. You see the back? Actually, it's not on the back of our bulletin. We need it there. You know, we're raising money for our church school. Had a wonderful experience. Yeah, let's see this. Yesterday, we had our new lockers uh, brought. Unfortunately, the lift truck was the, the actual pallet jack was in the front of the truck. So we had to unload part of it by hand. And those lockers, made in America lockers, are a tad bit heavy. Pallet jack was a great assistance. Chairperson taking them apart and inspecting them. They're half-size lockers, so they're not going to take quite as much room. And then our excavator came yesterday as well. And the new drive is going to allow us to drop off in the front of the school. And come Tuesday, Wednesday-ish of next week, we're going to pour that new driveway, 24 feet wide, 6-inch slab of concrete. And this will increase uh, the safety and the efficiency of our drop-off process. So we appreciate everybody who's been working so tirelessly at the school. These are just two little things. But we still have about $60,000 to raise. So I don't want you to rob Peter to take Paul. More importantly, God doesn't want you to rob Peter to pay Paul. But we do want to invite you to uh, look for a way to strengthen our school. And uh, we're, we're keeping the extra dirt. Maybe we'll have some more raised bed gardens somewhere down the road. I don't know. Also, uh, I want you to be aware that the start date of our school, uh, the conference, has asked us to move that back. And so that is right at the very end of August here. Had to cut some of the sidewalk out and some of the broken pavement. And all of that will be replaced with new concrete. And we're very grateful for that. Uh, we do have a work bee coming up, I think, next Sunday. So we want to invite you to set aside some time for that. And I look forward to the day when there's a panel of solar uh, panels, a first array on that church school roof. Lots of improvements. And I was so happy. If you look to the back side, video's over. That's all right. If you look to the back side of the school, we're going to have a new 40 by 60 outdoor pavilion. So we'll be able to have our own picnics for the church over there and the school. Yeah, look to the right side here off the back. Thank you, AV team. But if you look to the back side there, we're pulling out the backstop, which is old and not too nice looking. And uh, this all has to be voted by the board, of course, but it's as fresh as someone volunteering to do this. So what we'll plan to do, if it, if it goes through after some affirmation, we asked one of our architects to look at this, is remove the backstop right here and place the pavilion right here outside of the kitchen. Place the backstop over here and orient the ball fields this way. And someone's willing to donate that to us. Can you say amen? You know, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you, AV team. All right, and Pastor Michael for putting that together. Let's pray. Lord, we're in your house. We've come to worship you. I pray may we do it in a way that pleases you and respects all men and women. Bless us now as we go into the word. Please come into our hearts. Show us what you want to show us. If you challenge us, may we let you challenge us. If you change us, may we rejoice in your changing. If you comfort, may we take comfort in it. But whatever you want to do today, I pray please do it. And bless us as we reflect on some exceptionally important themes that are the intersection of common society and prophetic movement. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I am uh, here before you afternoon now, it looks like. I'm here before you presenting a message I did not want to present this morning. I wanted the ability to push it off. I tried. God laid this message on my mind, and yesterday I tried to deviate from his direction. But I'm compelled this morning to talk to you about the hinge point of the great controversy. What belongs to God? What belongs to government? It is this intersection that must be defined and understood in our own hearts. I've entitled my message, Give unto Caesar 
fear, respect, and love in the age of COVID-19. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the reasons I'm preaching this is because my job, my calling is to keep things going. And do you know how hard it is to keep something good going? Think about marriage. Those of you that are in a married situation, you know if your marriage has any measure of vitality how much work it has taken to keep that relationship vitalized. Raising kids. It's so difficult today to train up a child in the way he should go because the whole world is trying to get access to their mind to point them to the way they shouldn't go. When it comes to our institutions, our churches, and our schools, I've said through the years, nothing is harder than keeping a church school going. It takes all kinds of faith and dialogue and encouragement and financing and extra work. And this morning, I want to assure you that our churches and our schools, along with the institution of the home, is not a commodity of convenience. It takes a lot of work to make these things work. And when we don't recognize that, and when we don't protect those institutions, we can find ourselves inadvertently sliding into a pit from which it won't be quite so easy to climb out. So with that backdrop this morning, let's take a moment and think about who we are as a people and what it takes to go forward to the kingdom. When Jesus was a young boy, 12 years of age, becoming a man, he made a journey to Jerusalem, but his parents left Jerusalem without him. Not a good move, mom and dad. Somehow they assumed that he'd be in the caravan. But they get a day away and he's not there. When they come back to Jerusalem, they go into the temple precinct and there's all kinds of people gathered around Jesus listening to him talk. And when the crowd is gone and mom's actually able to say, why did you treat me like this? Jesus asks her a question and he says, didn't you know that I needed to be about my father's what? Business. Now I want to ask you, how important is the business of the gospel? And how important is the mandate of this church and this school? And is it perhaps worthy of stressing a few relationships for the growth of all and eventual comfort of all that we resolve again that we must be about our Father's business? Now, as I was praying in the back hallway before I came out here, I felt the distinct understanding of something very new. And it, it came to me. In every church I have received, there has always been a very risk-averse posture to doing anything where we can't connect all the dots. And the first thing people will say when you get into an experience, you know, I was trained in the Soul Win Institute, which I very much appreciate, and Russell Burrell taught us, you know, that first sermon. I've talked to you about this before, the I Have a Dream sermon. And, you know, my dream was, you know, we'd have enough people in and out of the parking lots of those little churches to where they wouldn't be full of weeds and that we'd actually have a vibrant church. But I can't digress. But I would say this. In the beginning of my tenure as a pastor, the very first question, and sitting on some other boards, is how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? And the not-so-subtle message was, is if the money wasn't on the books and it wasn't a priority, how dare you suggest it? Take a risk. Step out beyond sight into the arena of faith? Why, that would be what, friends? Some of you say faith. Some of you say presumption. Why, some of you have every penny of your paycheck delegated and slotted before it's ever in your hands. And after it is in your hands, there's never a deviation. And so for those that live and move according to that mentality, why, yes, it might look a bit presumptuous to plan to do something you don't have money for. Now, I'm going to connect a few dots. When you belong to a congregation or you're leading a home and you never are moved by the Spirit of God to do something where you can't see the end from the beginning, you never do that. You're going to find yourself in a position just like this whole country finds itself in where we have grown to be so risk-averse that the slightest little risk appears to be presumption. If you can't see the end from the beginning, 
Who do you think you are to suggest that we ought to do different than the, the well-traveled pass, pass of the masses or what's convenient? I'm here to challenge you today. God's church has sat on its laurels in too many ways. And I'm not here to rebuke this village church. This village church has in so many ways embraced things where they couldn't see the end from the beginning. And it's part of the reason that today, with properly social distance pews, we have a number of people that are here to worship. But the fact of the matter is, we have lived always being able to completely and solely provide for ourselves and in so many religious places not take any risks so that when we come up to a place where there's a risk, well, we're not going to take it. We trained ourselves. Now, that's a sad and sobering fact, but it's a fact. And it's not a fact everywhere. And by God's grace, it's not a fact for many here. But this is how we got to where we are to where we have a whole nation that is being fear-mongered into the path of least resistance without any risk-taking. And what's on the line is not only religious liberty, but in some sense you could say even a measure of civic liberty is on the line. Most of you have not looked at a constitution or a bill of rights in a long time. You don't know what it says, and you don't understand the price paid to keep it in place. I've got a copy of the bill of rights here with me this morning. I asked the first service to raise their hands. I'm not going to do that in this service. How many of you even know what the first is? What's your first right according to this seminal document from the origins of our civic being? I'm going to read it to you. And it would be good for all of you to get a copy of the Constitution. There are places that pre prepare pocket copies of the Constitution. And carry one with you. And get it out and read it. And think about what it costs to have it. And the lives and the blood that was shed to enshrine it and make it law. Amen. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the first part of the First Amendment. In other words, when this country came into being, it designated that Caesar had prerogatives in some places and no prerogatives in some others. This morning, I want to assure you that the great controversy hinges on an understanding of where Caesar has prerogative and where Caesar does not. And I'm not here to do it in a flippant, rebellious way. I'm here to do it outside the context of political mandarin to the, the viewpoint of left and right. In other words, there's got to be a place where there's still honest speech that is respectful, iron sharpens iron, and we're able to have dialogues that actually go down to the issues, and we're all honest enough in heart and soul and mind to say, well, maybe I need to think about that different. Maybe I need to change. There are some listening to me here today for whom I fear the spirit of rebellion is, as it were, running around your feet. And it's not so much an intelligent, principled understanding of what the Scriptures say about where those lines are drawn. It might be tainted with the miasma of nobody's going to tell me what to do. That spirit doesn't belong in a heart, in a home, in a church, in a society. It's just flat-out rebellion. But I am here to tell you today that if you wander through life on the good ship Lollipop and you never stop to think about where the lines of governmental infusion into your life privately or civically are drawn, you're not ready for what's coming. Because in the very end, I want to assure you, whether it's through economic collapse or environmental collapse or whatever it might be, everybody's going to need to get in line for the good of the common good. And if you don't, it won't be that some rogue element of political power is running around the world. It will be that a humanity scared enough and destabilized enough will resist and resent and hate you to whether you either pay the price of poverty, prison, or death, or all of them at some level combined. This is where the element of prophetic understanding is going. So what it means is that we cannot live risk-averse lives. We must live intelligent, spirit-filled, faith-guided, respectful journeys with each other because no one person's got a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But where we find ourselves today 
is to where having a dialogue about some, some things are shut down rapidly and easily because we have the moralizers and the virtue signalers who tell somebody who disagrees that they're either ignorant or unfit to be engaged in civic debate and the know-nothings need to shut up and listen to the know-somethings. It just so happens that whether you've sat through a formal education or not, if you've been humble on the journey of life, you've been educated. And customary law and common law have found themselves developing out of common sense, which is the collective wisdom of the mass of humanity, subcultures, etc. No, there shall be no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Or, moving on, abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Get yourself acquainted with it. I'm proud to say that the fourth graders in my wife's class, by confirmation of one of the judges in our local courthouse, said that these fourth graders knew more about civic law and the Constitution than many high schoolers that come to our local courthouse for field trips. We might need to know a little more ourselves. This morning, I'm suggesting that we should. Now, I want to go on a journey in the Word of God. I want you to take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Give unto Caesar. And how does the rest go, people? Let's do it one more time. Give unto the Caesar the things that are Caesar's and? All right. I think we ought to find out what it is that God wants. And I think we ought to find out what it is the Scriptures defer to the rulers of this age. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. So what's the setting? It's an absolute calculated attempt to embarrass, discredit, and eventually destroy Jesus. It's a plot. And they think they've laid it well. And indeed, for man's wisdom, they probably have. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. You know, the beautiful thing is, is that whether John the Baptist called out Herod or whether Jesus called out Herod, whether the measure was left or right, Christ was always true to truth. There still exists the possibility for God's people to have dialogues independent of political bias. God's people are self-aware of bias, and they are in communion with each other, which is a measure of accountability, and that allows them still to do what Jesus did, is maintain the respect of those around them. Though this is flattery, it is still truth. In other words, Jesus, we know you're going to aim and hit the bullseye every time. Now, it's a setup. They don't think he can weasel out of this one. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, endowed with heavenly wisdom, perceived their malice, and he said, why are you testing me, you what? Hypocrites. Now, if there's one thing that our modern society has yet to get a lesson or two on, it is how to be principled in the dynamics of love and the practice of law, not just in precept, but in principle. And it appears in our society that certain things are okay and need not have the wrath of society come down on them, and certain things are not. I'm not going to go into the details there. You'll have to think about all of that. But Jesus recognizes their hypocrisy. So I want to call out a bit of hypocrisy this morning myself. If in the course of events, you subscribe to a certain way of living, and when people are around you do it, or people are around that you like, you don't require them to do it. But when people come around that you don't like, or when people aren't around and you don't care, you might be walking the road of hypocrisy. If you're going to follow a principle out to its end, follow it in private, Follow it in public. Don't be afraid to defend it. Don't be afraid to amend it. Be a person of truth, and you don't have to be offended. Jesus recognizes that they're acting hypocritically. You hypocrites. 
Now, the other question I want to ask you is this. Did Jesus really need to add, you hypocrites? The answer is yes. And I'm going to show he does it more than once. You hypocrites, show me the coin that's used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they went away amazed, and they left him alone, backfired. Now, there's something about walking in truth and humility that doesn't backfire. But I want to go one more place. Turn back to Matthew 15. Another moment of hypocrisy. Tradition and the commandments. They want to want to know why Jesus is not washing his hands before he eats bread. Well, I'm going to tell you why Jesus wasn't washing his hands before he ate bread. It wasn't because Joseph Lister or Louis Pasteur was in his forethought. It wasn't because anybody understood biology and virulology. They weren't washing their hands because Jesus understood bigotry and prejudice, and the washing of the hands was to get the Gentile off. And Jesus wasn't having any of it. So they want to know why he's not keeping their laws. And in effect, I think you could say is that he's not afraid of showing the right way. He will respect all men, including those that are considered outcasts and off-scouring. And he will love those that are seeking the pre-crucifixion mentalities and actions, the scribes and the Pharisees, enough to confront them. He answered verse 3 and said to them, Matthew 15, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I would have done to help you has been given to God, he's not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Here we go, verse 7. You what? Hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It's not what enters a mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And as soon as the crowds were gone away, the disciples said, Jesus, we need to up your EQ just a little bit here. They came to him and they said, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Now, this is what happens in a society that abandons truth. Everything's about feelings. And if you hurt my feelings, then you've hurt me. It doesn't matter whether or not the trajectory you're on, the road you're on, the path you're walking is going to lead to destruction and destroy every other functional relationship you have because it's all a barrel of falsehoods. But as soon as feelings are tantamount and paramount, everything that's waiting to go on is all about offense. And there's only one cure. And the cure is to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, to bring justice and mercy, truth and kindness together, but you cannot deviate from that which sets you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The soul-destroying sin, selfish sin, 
of taking all of your tradition, all of your wealth that's going to come to you inheritance and say, Dad, Mom, I'm done with you. I'm going to give it all to the church. Get off my back. Leave me alone. Jesus said, I'm sorry. There's no get out of responsibility free card. But in the midst of it all, I want you to understand that he did not take a punch with his, with his human nature, which was not sinful human nature in the sense of wanting to hurt anybody. He doesn't take a punch and say, and by the way, you hypocrites, everything Jesus did had a purpose. Everything Jesus did was love. And in that moment, part of what Jesus was having to do was peel back the evil that was hidden behind the facade of religiosity. And he calls them hypocrites more than once in the scriptures because that's what they were. And their soul-destroying form of religion was ruining the witness of God. What is your commitment to the truth? Can the truth challenge you? Can the truth change you? Can the truth shake you up? Can the truth wrestle with you? I'm here to tell you this morning, in a dialogue about what is and what isn't Caesar's, fear, respect, and love are very important. It's absolutely important that there is an element of mutual respect, and there's not the no-betters and the no-nothings, and there's not the wise ones and the foolish ones. I'm not saying none of those categories have any validity in describing an individual, but when it comes to a discussion of ideas, especially controverted ideas, as soon as we moralize an issue, it's no longer up for discussion. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, last night I went downstairs into my files, and I started looking for some things. And if you've heard me talk about this before, no apologies. I, I, I knew in one of those files, I have a little house, and stacked in the back corner of my basement are all these crates with hanging file folders in them. Documentation matters to me. And I'm glad I'm holding it in my hands today. This paper says, investigating and remediating mold in Minnesota public schools. There's a story behind it. I've got some anonymous letters in here. My wife told me I should throw them away and most of them I did. I didn't realize I'd come across two of them as I went through my file on the Cicero Church School from 2011 to 2012. And by the way, if you ever get tempted to send an anonymous letter, recognize you're, you're engaging in one of the greatest acts of cowardice and save yourself the eventual embarrassment of being found out on the other side of eternity and maybe before. And wouldn't you know it though, this person is so deceived that they'll end the letter having said all kinds of things I cannot talk with them about with their deepest love in Christ. Yes, I appreciate the laughter. I have more than one in here like this. This one's single space, the whole thing. It's far enough away from me now, I don't need to throw it away. But you know, this kind of cowardice is not countenanced in the Word of God. Jesus was a man with a face that could be lovingly put into the wind, and the opportunity was, was that somebody might hear truth. So what's the issue? Well, the issue was is that we had a church school. I'm going to say about a five-room church school. Ended up having five teachers at it. God built it up over the years. It got down to two, and God built it up to five. Nice enrollment, sweet experience, wonderful Christian education, but it had a problem, and the problem was it had a flat roof. Now, flat roofs are fine for a while, but I don't think I know a flat roof that doesn't leak eventually. And you may have peaked roofs that leak eventually. Yeah, they do, but not like flat roofs. I've got a lot of experience. And you know, there was one spot that was particularly difficult to get to stop leaking, and unfortunately, it was right in the hallway, right by the entrance to the school. And too often, you'd see a garbage can collecting the water as it dripped down through. The problem was not only that it leaked, but that it was a low spot in the roof, and there was actually a little pond up there. So it didn't just leak when it was raining, it leaked for a long time, which made it hard to fix it. Now along the way, there were a few members that got in their mind, mainly one, that we should do what you did. What'd you do? Well, some years ago, the tradesmen of this school 
And this congregation put a nice peaked roof on that church going, I want to give you a big thumbs up. I won't have anything like this in my folder, thanks to all you tradesmen. I'm very grateful. That peaked roof on our village church school might be worth a million dollars to your pastor. But I want to tell you, we went through a lot of journeys administrationally on what to do. Now, I'll tell you how it would have been fixed real easy. Somebody get into their wallet, get out a blank check, and write 140,000, and it could all be fixed. And maybe there's some of you who came here prepared today to do something like that. I doubt it. And when it came to management, there was a subcommittee created of which voted anonymously 15 to 4 that that was not the role and the route for the church to go. Now, 15 to 4 might be one of the poorest votes that has ever happened in a committee that I've been with because most of the things we do in this church and most of the things we did for 20 years in that church were almost totally together, 100% unanimous almost all the time. Praise the Lord. But this person was not content with this vote. And so one night, under the cover of darkness, someone shared their key with someone who didn't even come to church but whose names were on the books. And they slipped into that church school and they were going for the lever that could change the argument and send it the other way. If they could find some mold in there and they could show up at the county health department, they could get the county health department to shut our school down. Now, I hate to tell you, friends, if you read through all my documentation here, you're going to find out that probably there's not too many buildings in America where you're not going to find some mold. Maybe even your house. And I want to tell you, there are things so hard to do that when you get to this level of deviation and deviousness, you're battling not against flesh and blood, but you're battling against spiritual principles and powers from dark places. It got so bad that even a few of my friends started doubting my credibility. And I had taken everything on everybody's word. I want to tell you how it ended up. It got so dicey that the contractor who was giving us advice told one thing to one group of people and one thing to another. Thank you, no thank you. Which made my job very difficult because the initial movement of the church with the school was to try to make it work a little longer because we didn't have 140000 to give for that project. And even if we had it to give, we believed in the broader scope of management that that one thing isn't the only thing that makes this church work, and there were other things to do, so we were going to try to fix it. I want to tell you how it came down to the wire, especially for you pastors that are listening to me. On the very day of the last vote on this item, the original contractor who had been told one thing, and that contractor who went on and told somebody else, he cornered that contractor and got him to put in writing what he had told him from the very beginning. And it was handed out at the last meeting, and it came in on the very last day. Praise the Lord. And I want to tell you, they fixed that rubber roof, spent very little money, and up until a year ago or so, the patch was still working, which meant that $130,000 was available for other things, including maybe even the scholarship to send kids to that school. Now, why am I bringing this up? One more. We had potlucks down at that church school. The problem was, one day a week for two hours, the parking lot wasn't big enough. So it was a 400 and some odd member church. The parking lot had probably 25, 30 spots in it. On Sabbath afternoon, when we went down to the church school to eat, people spilled into the ball field and parked along the road. And one of these very same people, that ought to prick your ears up. When you see everything negative or you see everything through the eyeglasses of, I don't like this person or I don't like that, and you can't get along, you might have a problem. And this very same person spoke up and said, we need a new parking lot. Well, for about the same amount of money, we could get a new parking lot. 
The only problem was most of us thought spending that much money on a parking lot that was used two hours a week wasn't a good use of the money. Then the person speaks up and says, well, if we're having potluck one day and somebody gets run down on the road because they park along this country road, it's going to be your fault. Now you tell me where you take a conversation that's been moralized like that and how you get to any semblance of appropriate civil understanding when you have moralized the argument. Now, if you cannot make the connection between what's going on today in society right here in Michigan or Indiana or anywhere else, then you have missed a pretty simple move because even as you drove, some of you teachers and pastors up to Campus Sabo for our ministry retreat, you could see that along the road there were big billboards. And the billboards talked about respect. And if you're going to pay respect to somebody, you needed to wear this. Now, I want to tell you, I wear these. When I went into Apple Valley the other day, I put it on. I was going into Harding's the other day, and I didn't have one. So I looked around and found a piece of cloth and held it over my face the whole time I was in there. But when I come to this church, since this church has voted in due process how to approach this pandemic, and since this place is not under the direction of Caesar, since we have taken a posture that we will social distance, shut down the water fountains, dismiss from the back. Since we have determined a variety of ways, tents up outside for our Sabbath schools this morning. Since we have voted a whole variety of other ways, and because the science is out on how effective this is, we decided to set the threshold of how we approach public worship on the choice of the individual. Which means when we reopened this church up, which was not at the state's permission, we reopened it up with a letter that explained that we were recommending but not requiring this. Now, this is a different mask. How many of you recognize its difference? I want to say thank you to Jonathan Min's mother, one of our assistant pastors, for sending me this. This is a much less pleasant mask to wear. It's an N95. It's the first mask that was given me. The good news is, is that if you still wanted to come to this church knowing that some feel conscientious about not being compelled to wear a mask, you could still come and worship with this on and be safe according to your understanding of safety. Thus, we have protected everyone's right. And if you still don't feel comfortable, we are broadcasting this so that anybody, including one of the 10,000 plus people that subscribe and follow our channels, can still go. Now, at the heart of religious liberty is the freedom to choose. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was provision for Lucifer to intersect their lives. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, have you ever wondered why God did this? Why did God give access to man and woman? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Religious liberty is an inconvenient and risky commodity. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Why? Why does Lucifer get to be on this perfect earth? 
Why couldn't God say, I've got this special little planet over here. You take your minions and do whatever you want to do. And throughout the ceaseless ages, we'll watch your experiment gone wrong, create all the misery it can create for you and a third of the angels. Why does God take the risk? Because at the heart of every meaningful encounter and the true definition of love and justice is the prerogative of every individual which this country has enshrined in law and many other countries have not to make certain decisions for oneself in your home and through your voluntary participation in a place of worship. And the truth of the matter is Lucifer himself appears to have a measure of religious liberty as well. In other words, he can still talk to the sons and daughters of God. And if we were to go to Job chapter 1, we would see that God actually allows Lucifer into the Congress of Heaven. And in the Congress of Heaven, he's able to represent this little planet for which God has said, oh, not so quick, Lucifer. They're not all your servants and your slaves. If they want to follow me, they still have choice. That's what was preserved in the garden. Now, let's add to that what the desire of ages says, and that is that the evil angels and Lucifer himself could sit at the entrance to heaven, and he could talk with and accost all of the angels coming and going on God's errand. Another measure of religious liberty. Why? Is there not the potential that somebody else could say, he's maybe got something going on there? What I want you to understand is that the hinge of human freedom swings the door of liberty for man. And if the lines are not rightly drawn, man's liberty, woman's liberty, children's liberty is what hangs in the balance. It is absolutely imperative that we recognize that the moralizing of a discussion with the know-somethings and the know-nothings is an absolute non-starter for how to have a discussion about where Caesar's rights and prerogatives start and end. There are two churches in California. You know, there are 50-some counties in California that can't go to church. You may not be aware of this. I mean, I'm not making this up. I, you don't even have to look hard to find these things. I mean, I got tweets or texts or whatever months ago. Well, a month ago. First it was you can't sing at church. I was visiting with some of my associates this week, and, and one of them said, when I explained that some churches are wearing masks and humming, he said, that is now directly impacting worship. What does the first angel say? Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and what? Worship. Now, is that simply singular worship in your home? Or is there a measure of corporate worship that brings strength and spiritual focus and vitality to a group of people? Is there not a call to praise which is an act of worship like prayer? Is there not the divine right made in the image of God to under one's own volition gather to express their adoration and worship to the one who waded into this sin-infested, disease-infested world and bought their freedom from death so that they might not fear death anymore. God is calling us to a respectful dialogue that not only will preserve our religious liberty, but perhaps some greater measure of civic liberty as we watch states of emergency pushed on and on and on. Now I want to ask you, when it comes to management, 10 years ago in the Cicero Church, we weren't in a position, nor did we decide it priority to say, we're going to spend $140,000 on that roof. We're going to spend $140,000 on that parking lot. We had some other priorities. In other words, management encompasses a lot of things. I was driving into this church yesterday, listening to the radio. And by the way, National Public Radio. So anybody wants to know what kind of radio I'm listening to. And they're talking about the escalation of child abuse, elder abuse, domestic abuse. I'll add to that deaths of despair, food insecurity, diminished educational returns on various methodologies, 
And one more thing that I don't think anybody's really giving proper civil discourse. <laughs> Did you know that when the Fed and the Treasury get together, they can do something magical? They don't hit a button. But together, the Fed and the Treasury, the Fed giving permission, Federal Reserve, and the Treasury doing the printing, we can make money as Americans. I'll tell you how I make my money. I come into this church every day and I deal with people and problems. I'm on the phone, I'm on the computer, I'm planning. I don't have the ability. My mother would always used to say, money doesn't grow on. Last I checked, it still doesn't. But as long as there's still the full faith and, and confidence in the American government, we can print our own money to the tune of some say, including the Washington Post, up to $6 trillion, which, by the way, you need to understand that's five times more money that's been infused into the economy than during the 2008 financial crash, which takes our percent of GDP, gross domestic product, the percent of debt to the percent of what we actually produce and brings it to its highest spot in American history equal to the World War II era. Now, I talk to employers who can't get their employees to come back to work. Why? Because they're making more money receiving a dole from the government than they did working for somebody who actually had to do something for their money. The last I checked, the Bible directs personal responsibility for income. It's a little bit rough, but Paul will say, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, we believe in humanity and compassion, so that's not a carte blanche application to everything. But if you knew that your employer was going to go insolvent, that means bankrupt, would you consider going into work? If you understood that that paycheck couldn't be forever promised by the good faith and credibility of the United States government, in other words, you can only borrow for yourself so long into the future before at some point in time, give it some kind of crisis, I don't know what it is, you might not have the good faith and confidence of the United States government and printing money wouldn't be an option. Some of us grew up more poor than others. I don't want to say I grew up abject poor. I didn't. But I did grow up on the bottom end of the middle class, bottom enough to where I've told you stories about my grandma coming over from the Dorcas Society, for those of you that remember what Dorcas was, and bringing those big plastic bags of clothes she had culled out of the Dorcas Society. That would be grandma working over here at neighbor to neighbor and realizing it's okay for her to take this stuff and go see if little, her oldest grandson, Ronnie, needs anything. I despised it. But if you grow up poor, you get an education, the most expensive kind, because you realize what grinding poverty does. If you've grown up where every need has always been met and you've never had food insecurity or paycheck insecurity, I've told you before, I knew the name of my parents' mortgage holders. How many 14-year-olds know who holds their parents' mortgage? I knew because the letters would come in the mail about repossessing our home. I remember as a boy taking two five-gallon buckets and a little buck saw and walking down to the woods two or three blocks away and picking up as many dead branches as I can and cutting them and putting them in so that we could go back home, even though it was an old, not very airtight Ben Franklin cast iron stove, create a little bit of financial margin. It probably did next to nothing. I've driven junky cars most of my young adult life. They're not too fancy now. Because I decided back then that some things mattered more. But I figured out how hard it was to make things go and how much pain and value there is in opportunity. And the truth of the matter is, everybody listening to me here today is to be a contributor, not just a consumer. If I told you that major corporations, big corporations... We're teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. How many, how, many, what, how many months can the big airliners sit parked up front to tail 
with a fraction of them flying, and you actually think all those millions and millions and billions of dollars spent at Boeing and Airbus, that somebody's going to want to be paid? They've told those companies, you can't lay anybody off until October 1, I think it is. In other words, we're going to keep a facade of normalcy until we get here. I had one person who has millions of miles on one of the major airlines say to me, I want to use them up because I think they might go bankrupt. Is anybody in America thinking about this? Is there more to manage than just corona? And is all of the science double-blind, proven study, or is most of it anecdotal? And is it up for discussion? And do local localities have the right to decide how they're going to do things? Do you check the corona dashboard in Berrien County? I do. I take pictures of it regularly and save it on my computer. The public welfare of this body of believers matters much to me and all of its leaders, but not so much that I would leverage fear to take away your choices. What does fear look like? It looks like Peter. I call it a trifecta. Dishonesty, fear, and arrogance all working together. Where do we see it in the Bible? Oh, no, Jesus, I won't deny you. I know me. I'm not motivated by fear. Jesus tells them all, you're all going to run away. I bet they all shook their head and said, no, we've been together too long. Jesus says, yes, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, you don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, I do. And by the time the rooster crows two times in the morning, you will have acted like you never knew me. And what was true about this was that Jesus in his graciousness didn't tell him he was going to cuss his way out of the situation. But I want to tell you, when push came to shove, that elemental dynamic of self-preservation kicked in and he stared into the eyes of those servant girls and that last servant and he said, okay, you haven't gotten it before. I'm going to get it across this time. And it went blankety, blank, blank, blank from there and they finally left him alone. We're in a situation like we're in right now in this country because the church has enjoyed a role as a consumer that has not taken the risk over truth, justice, and mercy. We're in this role right now because we have played away the opportunities to grow in faith and everything makes us afraid. And while fear is a normal human emotion and sometimes a protector against gross evil, it is also waiting to be manipulated by Satan to destroy our professed love for Jesus. And that's what Jesus said to Peter. These things have turned out to be what many will call a, uh, a statement about your political perspective. Just for the record, I didn't vote in the last election, and I don't want this to be construed in any which way. I'm not a political activist, but I am an American, and I do believe at some level, at least when I go in my own home and I walk in my own church, if the people that are wanting to come to church here know What's happening? Some will, some won't. I respect you if you do. Some certainly should. But don't disrespect me. Don't let your fears attempt to control someone else. Do not virtue signal that you're a better person because you would never do that to somebody else. Maybe fear is a worse human disease than the coronavirus. And maybe it has eternal ramifications. But when you walk in another store, put it on. Now, I know some of you are not inclined that way. But I do believe that Caesar has something to say about public commerce. And I don't need to be making a statement that I'm a law unto myself because I'm not.
love. I met with somebody in this church during the coronavirus, which means in the last four months, middle-aged man, heartbreaking, relational problems. We knelt together back there. I listened. We prayed. He didn't come in with a mask. I wasn't wearing one. I think it was important, actually, that I wasn't. When we got up to leave, we walked out the same hallway most of you will walk out, and he turned to me and he created a new level of social violation. He went like this. What's that mean? I want to hug you. Do I not love my wife? You bet I do. Am I the master of my own mortality? Well, in some general ways, maybe, but ultimately for surely not. Would you like to pit my love for my wife against my love for this church member? Is there not an ultimate high calling that says constant vigilance and self-preservation is not the call of the Christian? But that God says, attend to my work and I will attend to your care. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. And I'm not going to give him a fraction of a second looking like this while I look around like, mm, did you wash your hands in the last 20 minutes? And so we stood right out there in that hallway, and this 56-year-old man and probably this 45-year-old man gave each other an embrace, and it wasn't just like a quick one either. Was it God's job to architect that encounter? Was it my job to respond in God's place, to bring some measure greater than words? Now, I'm not suggesting everybody walk out of here and start shaking hands and hugging and kissing on each other, okay? You'll be dismissed from the back. Please go outside, breathe all the fresh air you can, and social distance. Unless you've already got a little immunological social bubble, live in it and enjoy it. But I do know this. I was called to love that man with some physical touch. Those that have been raised in the environment of theory and data are going to need to take a lesson in humility from those who have had to solve real problems in life. Go out and start the tractor in a blizzard in sub-zero weather. Go out and change the tire. Go out and water the dog. Give away your last $20 to somebody who's worse off than you. Take that box of food to somebody, and it may mean you'll have oatmeal, a few more meals. Suffer through privation and hardship and get life's needle calibrated right so everything doesn't make you afraid. And self-interest is not the guiding principle. When Christ came down to Calvary, there was a 100% likelihood of mortality. He was infected with our diseases, not because he did anything to deserve them, but because he volitionally allowed his life to be injected. And what he offered Lucifer in the garden, which was a chance to talk to his new creation, Adam and Eve, Lucifer would have loved to rob Jesus from. But Jesus walked all the way to Calvary until he couldn't carry the cross. Somebody else had to carry it. And when they laid him down and drove nails through his hands, he was not breathing out divine directives of revenge and epitaphs of evil. He was calling out in the midst of suffering, which some of us are going to have to do if we fulfill our role in this pandemic. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing.
Indeed, friends, the garden and the cross are two very different moments. And if we cannot keep the respect of the public while we respectfully respect their fears without letting their fears control us, then we've lost the game. Put your mask on at Apple Valley. Put your mask on at Schrader's. When you come here, it's up to you. We're social distanced. Some days we have the windows open. I don't know how long we'll have to go before any anecdotal evidence is attached to our meeting together, but we're getting close up to about 20 times because we had eight nights of camp meeting here. But if there's one thing you cannot do is you cannot have fear, which was the first elemental emotion under the plague of sin, direct your life. Show respect. Know where the lines are drawn. And then by God's grace, give him the only thing he really wants. He's going to burn this world up, so I don't suspect any of the material treasures worth anything. But he does want your praise, and he does want your worship. You need it. It honors him. One last story. I've told it before. Some of it will gross some of you out. He was an outcast among the outcasts. It was opportunity camp, and back in the day when I was a camp counselor, that meant all the inner city kids from somewhere got bus six hours down to southern Illinois to Little Grassy Lake. And it was always a roller coaster ride for the counselors because, man, these kids had no Christianity, some of them, no real good upbringing. And it didn't take long for the pecking order to get all figured out, and he was an outcast of the outcast. And it made me sad. Sometimes it irritated me. I still remember the day I was sitting at the cafeteria table with my haystack just ready to eat. And his head rears back, and he sneezes all over my food. For a brief second, everything inside of me that was revulsed at his DNA slathered across my meal, tempted me to pick it up and walk away and throw it in the trash can. But inside of me, I knew it was one more moment for the hen-pecked kid to get a few more pecks. And I picked up my fork and I started eating. I know for some of you gerbophobes, that's the end of the world. You never know. I might have gotten some good DNA from him. You never know. His immunity might be mine today. You'll have to get over yourself. Jesus has got you cared for. You're going to make it as long as he says you should make it. You're going to breathe as long as he says breathe. Your heart's going to beat as long as he says beat. In the meantime, quit worrying about yourself too much. Be thoughtful and respectful to the people around you. Sometimes their fears might dictate you put this thing on. But this morning at this church, the reason we're not wearing them it's because we've set the threshold at personal choice and announced it so everybody who came here today had a chance of knowing what it was going to be, and they came under their own volition, which is a form of liberty. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. If you don't do that, you're not going to have the ability to lead anybody to the ultimate authority who someday will come back to take us home. I haven't said anything as I close. You need to know something. 
The mark of the beast is a mark of fear. You'll be poor. You'll be outcast. You'll wonder where your next meal is coming from. Except by God's grace, you'll know that he feeds the birds and he hasn't forgotten about you. As we studied in the very first sermon I preached called Confidence in Crisis four months ago, if there is one man that represents our end times, it's Elijah, and there is nobody for whom food miracles happen more than for Elijah. Our bread and water has been promised us. In the meantime, let us not fail to participate respectfully in honest, respectful dialogues. Let us not fail to respect in the proper time and place the concerns of other people. But in our own home and here, since we've made provision for all people to participate somehow, some way, let's bring an end to the condescending dialogue that suggests that somehow we're less faithful to our current community and citizenry because not everybody here is wearing a blue piece of paper. May God help us all to be men and women of kindness and courage and know that our days were written in a book before any one of them came to be. One more thing. Jesus is always true. And when you sing the last verse of this song we're about to sing, I want you to catch the very last part of the very last stanza about no fear. We got to make this thing work. The American economy doesn't work on wishes and borrowed money. The educational system doesn't work on, on the very best digital technology. It works with the courage, the kindness, and the confidence. Come on up, singers. It works on the very best of relationship building, especially our faith provisions. Years ago in Indiana, I was talking with somebody this week. His father was the education superintendent. They had 36 seven-day Adventist schools. Today, there's probably 12, maybe. I'm telling you, it's hard to keep something going. You can't keep it going and act afraid. You got to figure out what God wants. Pick up the fork and take a bite. And may God help us all to trust and obey. Amen.